Due to the nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and gun violence. Consider this when deciding how and when you'll listen. Another note before we begin, while we usually present a straightforward story, this case has some legal complexities, so you'll occasionally hear us pausing the story to clarify key facts. February 28, 1986, started out well for Olaf Palma. It was a Friday, and the 59-year-old prime minister was excited for the weekend. He didn't have any meetings or speeches planned, just two full days to relax with his family. He was in a great mood and even managed to run a quick errand before heading to his office in central Stockholm. He'd bought a suit the day before, off the rack, not custom, and his wife, Lisbeth, didn't approve. He needed to exchange it. And even though an assistant could have helped, the prime minister insisted on doing it himself. Bodyguards followed Olaf into the clothing shop, scanning the racks for any threat. All clear. Afterward, Olaf Palma made his way to the seat of Swedish government, a building called Rosenbad. He thanked the guards for their service and told them they could start their weekends early. The guards didn't object. They were used to being shooed away. The prime minister was a social democrat who insisted on living a normal, middle-class life. To him, walking around with guards felt unnecessary, if not downright hypocritical. So while the request was ordinary enough, it took an eerie tenor over the next few days. Because that was the last time Olaf Palma's colleagues ever saw him. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This episode covers the 1986 murder of Swedish Prime Minister Olaf Palme. His death is often compared to the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Both were iconic leaders whose untimely deaths inspired countless conspiracy theories. This time, we'll cover Palma's political legacy and the early mistakes that may have doomed his murder investigation. Next time, we'll follow the three-decade quest to find the culprit and the bewildering conclusion investigators reached just a few years ago. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. 
Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. By 1986, Olaf Palme was known for being a man of the people, but he didn't start out that way. He was born into a wealthy, conservative family and lived in one of the most expensive neighborhoods in Stockholm. In his teen years, he attended an exclusive boarding school, then completed his compulsory service in the Swedish army. We don't know much about Olaf's political beliefs at this time, but it seems like he was on track to follow his parents' footsteps into conservative politics. However, something seemed to shift in 1947. Instead of attending a Swedish university, 20-year-old Olaf decided to study at Kenyon College in rural Ohio. He would later remark that his time in the United States made him a socialist. He joined radical student debate groups, wrote a thesis on the United Auto Workers Union, and hitchhiked across North America with only a few dollars in his pocket. He loved how open and personable American politicians seemed to be, very different from Sweden's dutiful, quiet bureaucrats. But he detested the country's imperialist machinations and racial segregation. He wanted to take the best parts of American politics back to his home country and leave the rest behind. By 1949, Olaf returned to Sweden and became involved in student politics. His charismatic speeches soon caught the attention of the prime minister, Tage Erlander. The PM became Olaf's friend and mentor, and eventually hired him as a parliamentary secretary. From there, Olaf climbed the ranks of the Social Democrats, becoming a member of parliament in 1958 and the Minister of Education in 1967. He was remarkably outspoken for a lower-level politician, especially on international issues. He had clear, uncompromising views on human rights, and he loudly denounced any country that seemed to be violating them, even if they were on good terms with Sweden. This issue really came to the fore in 1968. The 41-year-old politician appeared at a rally against the Vietnam War and delivered some pointed remarks about the United States escalating military actions. One quick note here. This speech was originally delivered in Swedish. The following is a verbatim translation It may not sound natural if you're listening in English, but it is the official record of Olaf's words from his personal archival documents. Democracy demands justice. 
One cannot gain a people by filling the pockets of those who are already rich, while the poor are driven into ever deeper distress. One cannot meet the demand for social justice by violence and military power. Democracy presupposes social liberation. The goal of democracy can never be reached by means of oppression. One cannot save a village by wiping it out, putting the fields on fire, destroying the houses, captivating the people, or killing them. The United States did not take kindly to Olaf Palma's words. American leaders condemned the speech, and so did the leaders of Sweden's more conservative parties. Leaders of wealthy Western nations generally didn't dare speak out in defense of the so-called third world. But the controversy, and others like it, only made Olaf more popular among his constituents. Many social democrats respected his bravery and his direct, impassioned style of speaking. His star rose in the party, and when Tage Erlander stepped down in 1969, they unanimously decided that Olaf would take the reins. He was 42 when he became prime minister, a year younger than the United States' youngest elected president, John F. Kennedy. Olaf spearheaded multiple reforms to the Swedish constitution and dramatically expanded the country's public health and welfare systems. Benefits for disabled, elderly, and unemployed people were revamped, while preschool was established as a universal right. Abortions became free to every woman, and unions became far more powerful. In other words, Olaf Palme made Sweden into a true social democracy, where equality was paramount. But not everyone was happy about the changes. None of these social reforms came for free. They required large changes to the tax code. Middle-class Swedes had to give up about 70% of their income, and the wealthy had to pay even more. Many small businesses couldn't handle the drop in profits and were forced to shut down. With every fiery speech and ambitious reform, Olaf's fans found another reason to love him but his detractors found something new to despise. The conservative backlash grew steadily throughout the 1970s. It reached a breaking point in the 1976 election, when Olaf Palma's Social Democrats were unseated for the first time in 40 years. A coalition of conservative and centrist parties briefly took control of the country. But the new government fell apart within a few years. Many Swedes decided they wanted their charismatic leader back, and Olaf was re-elected in 1982. However, Sweden had changed in the last six years. Socialism wasn't as popular, and Olaf had to cater to more centrist viewpoints to get anything done. He also became the subject of several conspiracy theories, none of which were based in any fact. Some conservatives implied he was taking bribes from the Soviets or had been trained by the KGB to weaken Sweden from the inside out. 
At one point, someone saw him enter a hospital to visit his elderly mother and started a rumor that Olaf was suffering from schizophrenia. Several people insisted he was cheating on his wife, Lisbeth, with Hollywood actresses or British noblewomen. These theories were crass and untrue, but they showed how deep the hatred ran against Olaf. He had powerful enemies. By 1986, the prime minister was 59 years old. He'd been chairman of the Social Democratic Party for 17 years and had been in charge of the country for 11. Yet even as the job wore on and tensions swirled, he seemed energized and excited. When he dismissed his security detail and stepped into Rosenbad on Friday, February 28th, several co-workers noted that Olaf was in a good mood. He had a fairly average day of meetings and interviews ahead of him, including a sit-down with the Iraqi ambassador to talk about recent developments in the country's ongoing war with Iran. We don't have much information about the rest of the prime minister's schedule that day, though he'd recently made waves by condemning South African apartheid. So he may have been dealing with fallout from that. And we do know that in the afternoon, Olaf met with a reporter, He seemed happy, mostly. There was a strange moment when the journalist took out his camera and asked Olaf to stand in front of a window for the photo. The politician's face suddenly fell. According to the reporter, he said, No, no, I I can't. You never know what may be waiting for me out there. This could have been Olaf's attempt at a joke, or it could have been Friday afternoon fatigue talking. Eventually, he went back to his usual self and posed for a picture on a couch in his office. He shook hands with the reporter and said they'd meet again soon, most likely on an upcoming trip to Moscow. The man walked away not realizing that he'd just taken the last photo of Olaf Palme. Work wrapped up at its usual time, and Olaf walked to his apartment in Stockholm's Old Town neighborhood. After a few hours at home, Olaf and his wife, Lisbeth, spontaneously decided to join their son, Morten, at the Grand Cinema to see a comedy called The Brothers Mozart. Around 8.35 p.m., the couple stepped out of their home and into the snowy evening. Olaf wore a huge fur hat and a thick overcoat. His prominent, aquiline nose made him instantly recognizable to many. A few people said hello while he was waiting for the train, but most politely averted their eyes. When the subway arrived, no one even got up to offer him or Lisbeth their seat. The Palmas made it to the Grand Cinema without incident, but were disappointed to see a line snaking out of the theater. After greeting Morton, Olaf and Lisbeth took their place at the end of the queue. How many seats do you think are in there? Ninety? One hundred? We should have called ahead. We'll get in. Just be patient. It might be all filled up by the time we get up there. I'm sure someone at this theater is sympathetic to the party, so I'll just... No, Olaf. Get back here and wait in line with everyone else. There's nothing in the Constitution about the Prime Minister getting good seats at the movie theater. 
You're right. We'll wait. When the Palmas made it to the ticket counter, only the worst seats were left in the theater. But they got lucky. The cashier was a social democrat and bent the rules to book them in the theater director's reserved row. The family settled in just as the preview started rolling, eager to kick off a peaceful, politics-free weekend. When a trade union leader recognized Olaf and tried to talk shop, Lisbeth told him off. Can you leave him alone for one night, please? The workday is over and politicking can wait until Monday. Please, just let Olaf have a good time and enjoy himself tonight. The union leader slunk back to his seat, probably cursing Lisbeth for ruining his chance to speak with the prime minister. But within a few hours, her statement would feel painfully ironic. Because for Olaf Palma, there would be no Monday. Coming up, an assassination with dozens of witnesses and a faceless gunman. Hi, listeners. I'm Vanessa Richardson, host of Serial Killers. Like many of you, I'm fascinated by the darker side of humanity. What causes someone to develop such deadly desires and why they decide to act on them? For the past six years, I've been able to explore these curiosities weekly, tapping into the mental states of the world's most notorious killers, examining their backgrounds and habits, searching for answers. If you haven't had a chance to check out our show, there's truly no better time to dive in. With hundreds of episodes to binge and new ones released weekly, Serial Killers is the perfect podcast for any avid true crime fan. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. Listen for free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. The credits for the brothers Mozart rolled around 11 p.m., and the audience slowly filtered out of the theater. Olaf, Lisbeth, and Morton Palma stayed in their seats for a few minutes, mentally preparing themselves for the icy evening air. It was below freezing that night, about 20 degrees Fahrenheit. That wasn't unusual for Stockholm in February, but it wasn't comfortable either. 24-year-old Morten Palma suggested they warm up with a cup of tea. His parents politely declined. It was getting late. Both Olaf and Lisbeth wanted to head home. They were at odds on how to get there, though. Lisbeth wanted to take the subway back to Old Town Stockholm, but Olaf preferred to walk. It's only a few kilometers, and it'll be good for us. We don't want our son to think we're some old fogies who can't stand the cold, do we? I'm tired, Olaf, and Morton doesn't care. We'll have plenty of time to go on a walk tomorrow. Besides, the only people out at this hour are drunks and hooligans. You never know what could happen, especially without... It's Stockholm on a Friday, Lisbeth, not Gamora. It's been ages since we've seen the city at night. It'll be fun. 
If you insist. Lisbeth agreed to walk home, though she may have been a bit apprehensive about the route. Olaf suggested they take the Svea Vegan, a street with a fair amount of foot traffic, but one that still required them to pass some sketchy nightclubs and bars. The Prime Minister and his wife took off around 1117. Several witnesses saw them heading south on the Svea Vegan. After a few minutes, they reached an intersection. There was a paint store on the corner. The Palmas stopped there for a moment. At this point, a man named Inga Morelius happened to be parked on the Svea Vegan. He was waiting for his friends to withdraw cash from an ATM. A few minutes before the Palmas reached the store, Morelius spotted a tall, anxious-looking man waiting in front of the paint store. He wore a thick, dark overcoat and glanced up and down the street a few times like he was looking for someone. Morelius got a bad feeling. It looked like the man might rob someone, or worse. The store had bright, backlit window displays, so Morelius couldn't make out the man's face. He watched as two figures approached, walking arm in arm. It looked like a short woman and a man with a large fur hat. These were the Palmas, though Morelius didn't know it yet. He turned to a buddy in the back seat and joked that the couple might get mugged. The reality turned out to be much worse. The tall man stepped out of the shadows and tailed the couple for a few steps. Then the stranger lunged, grabbing the shorter man by his shoulder. Before Olaf could turn around, the attacker reached into his overcoat and pulled out a large handgun. A shiny barrel caught the streetlight as the gunman moved it into position, about seven inches from Olaf's back. Two shots rang out. The Prime Minister crumpled to the ground, his arms still interlocked with Lisbeth's. The assailant froze for a second, staring at the limp body, then pocketed his gun and fled toward a pedestrian tunnel. But if he was planning to run through, he was out of luck. The tunnel was closed at night, and the only way to continue up the street was to climb a set of 89 stairs leading to a street called David Bagaris Gada. A man named Lars Jepsen was loitering near the stairs. He saw the assailant take them two or three at a time and tried to run after the man. By the time Jepsen got up to David Bagaris Gada, the assassin was gone. But two other witnesses confirmed that he'd run past. Their descriptions matched what Jepsen saw, more or less. A tall man in a long overcoat. Jepsen thought he was wearing a cap, and one of the pedestrians saw a small bag around his wrist. But they couldn't talk for long. Jepsen continued his pursuit until he spotted the man again far away. The assailant ducked into a construction site, and Jepsen realized he would never catch up. He rushed back to the crime scene, where a small crowd had already gathered. A teenage girl was trying to perform CPR, and the blood-spattered woman was trying to pull her off. 
The woman screamed that her husband needed an ambulance. No one seemed to realize it was the prime minister on the ground. They thought it was just a random couple. The gory scene was shocking enough on its own, and multiple people alerted the authorities, or tried to alert them at least. One witness called emergency services from his car phone just moments after he heard the shots. But once he was transferred to the police line, no one picked up. A full 90 seconds passed before he gave up and ran to the crowd of pedestrians. A few seconds later, a cab driver radioed his headquarters asking them to call. The dispatcher tried to explain the situation to a detective, but she was brushed off. The police only arrived because another cab driver heard that conversation over the radio and happened to be parked near a patrol car. He knocked on the window and relayed the message to the officer on duty, Lieutenant Josta Sutterstrom. Well, luckily, Sutterstrom didn't dismiss the story the way his colleagues did. He sped to the crime scene and pushed through the anxious crowd. He didn't recognize the victim, who was lying face up on the icy sidewalk, but it was clear the man was already dead. An autopsy would later show that the bullet entered Olaf's back at close range and went straight through both his spinal column and his aorta. Blood was dripping from his open mouth. When a bystander tried to resuscitate him, he felt the air whistle out of the bullet hole. That meant that his lung was perforated too. Sutterstrom tried to piece together what happened. The blood-spattered woman was screaming incoherently, The witnesses didn't get a good look at the killer's face, but they all said he'd gone up the stairs. When four more officers arrived, Sutterstrom sent them to pursue the assassin, but the killer was already long gone. Next, Sutterstrom tried to get a description. He heard one witness say the man was wearing a short blue parka and sent that information to headquarters. Just a few seconds later, another officer, maybe one who ran up the stairs, called in a completely different description. He said the man was wearing a long gray coat and a hat. Sutterstrom didn't have time to set the record straight. He needed to figure out who this dead man was. Just then, the screaming woman rushed at him. Where is the ambulance, officer? We need it now. He's very important. There's so much he needs to do. Take a breath, miss. Do you have identification documents? Are you kidding? Help him! I just need to verify... It's been an eternity. He needs a doctor. Do you see? Ma'am, I need to know who you are. Who I am? You must be insane. Protocol. Are you crazy? I'm Lisbeth Poma, damn it, and that man is my husband, Olaf! Your Prime Minister! Josta Sutterstrom's eyes widened. He glanced down at the angular face under a fur hat. The man's features were obscured by a layer of gore, but underneath was a face he'd seen a thousand times. He walked back to his patrol car, completely devastated. He radioed the Stockholm Police Department. Alerting all units that the man shot on the Sphere Vagan has been identified. He is Prime Minister Olaf Palmer. 
I repeat, the Prime Minister has been shot in the street. Stand by for orders. Over. An ambulance finally arrived and two paramedics loaded the limp body onto a stretcher. They arrived at the hospital around 11.30. Just nine minutes had passed since the gunman fired, but it was too late. Olaf Palma was officially declared dead at 12.06 a.m. on March 1st, 1986. A nurse broke the news to Lisbeth, and several detectives swarmed her, asking for a description of the gunman, but she was in shock and hadn't gotten a good view of the assailant. She told one officer the gunman was tall, with dark hair and a short blue coat. But within an hour or so, she told another interviewer that she didn't remember anything other than the blue jacket. Even though she couldn't offer a clear description, she did have a guess about the killer's identity. She told the second detective that two men had been seen near her house in December and seemed to be keeping it under surveillance. She was fairly certain one of these men shot Olaf. She gave her statement around 1 a.m., and someone at police headquarters relayed it to the other departments an hour later. However, something got lost in translation along the way. She clearly said that she'd seen two men in December and that one of them was probably the killer. But the dispatch sent out at 2.05 a.m. stated that two gunmen were on the loose. This was the first general alert sent out to police all over Sweden. It got the most basic facts about the killing wrong. And it was only the tip of the iceberg. In later years, writers like Jan Bundesen would point out a laundry list of errors the police made in the initial hours of the investigation. Officers skipped over crucial steps like setting up roadblocks on the highway and checking outgoing trains for possible suspects. They didn't alert law enforcement in neighboring cities and left the media in the dark, too. Even the forms they used to record their activities that night were incorrect. But their biggest mistake may have been at the crime scene itself. In the rush to record witness testimony, officers only cordoned off a small area. As rumors spread that the prime minister had been shot, Stockholm residents came out in droves to see for themselves. Several left bouquets of flowers on the bloody pavement. The crime scene was littered with wilting roses when the forensics team arrived. The unit's captain felt the scene had already been disturbed beyond repair and essentially gave up. By morning, entire patches of the roped-off area had been obscured. Countless clues may have been covered up, too. It seemed like one of Olaf Palma's main goals, securing the love and respect of the Swedish public, had turned against him. His crime scene became an impromptu memorial. With each petal that fell to the frozen ground, his killer moved further out of reach. Coming up, a police chief tries to get the investigation back on track. And now, back to our story. 
Stockholm Police Commissioner Hans Holmier had no idea Olaf Palma was dead when he woke up on March 1st, 1986. The 55-year-old was on a ski trip and had missed the calls from his panicked deputies the night before. He probably caught wind of the murder from radio or newspaper reports, though, because he cut his trip short and sped back to Stockholm, skidding along the icy roads. Palmier arrived at headquarters at 10.50 a.m. and found the investigation in complete disarray. Phones were ringing off the hook, and even his top officers didn't know what to say to the press. There were way too many issues to address all at once. Holmier needed to keep the public calm and regain their trust. From now on, the investigation would be organized and decisive. Or at least he'd do his best to make it look that way. The commissioner called a press conference for noon. That gave him an hour to prepare his statements and sort through mountains of information. A note here, we don't know exactly how he did this, but it's reasonable to guess that he called a few trusted detectives into his office and reviewed the witness testimonies. Here's how we imagine that played out, based on the facts we have available from this point in the investigation. So, we have two men who claim they saw the murder in full. Inga Morelius was sitting in a parked car, and Anders Bjorkman was walking close behind. Both say the killer was tall, with a coat that went past his knees and in it cap. Didn't see much of his face, though. Then we've got about 16 who saw him running away. Most of them agree on the dark overcoat. They noticed it flapping between his legs or something. One says he was a little clumsy on the way up, but everyone else thought he looked pretty athletic. With 89 stairs, he can't have been too out of shape. Even though there were slight variations, many of the initial statements created a pretty consistent picture of the suspect. A tall, athletic man in a dark trench coat and knit hat. But there were several outliers. A small number of people at the scene swore they saw a man in a shorter blue jacket, including Lisbeth Palme. Before Hans Holmier could move forward, he needed to resolve the contradiction. Mrs. Palma was closest to the gunman, right? She'd have the clearest view. Now, these other witnesses could just be talking nonsense for attention, for all we know. Perhaps. But we need to consider. What did the rest of the Palma family see? No one else from the Palma family was there, sir. Uh, the son, Morton, did see a strange man when they left the Grand Cinema. He described him as, uh, stout and a bit disheveled with glasses, a brimmed hat, and a short blue jacket. Morton says he was watching the Prime Minister, and when Olaf and Lisbeth turned to walk down the Sveavagen, he walked right behind them. Now we're getting somewhere. Holmier probably felt like he'd made a breakthrough when he heard about Morton Palma's statement. Apparently, a man in a short parka had followed the Palmas home. And according to Lisbeth, a man in a short parka shot Olaf. The stories meshed perfectly. But there were at least a dozen people who insisted the killer wore a knee-length coat. Holmier 
had to make a choice, side with the other witnesses or go with the Palmas. And the choice seems pretty obvious. A dozen witnesses are more convincing than two, and Morton Palma wasn't even at the murder scene. For all they knew, he could have been describing a random pedestrian. But Holmir needed to think fast, and he might not have had time to consider all the angles. When he stepped up to the podium at noon, his message to the press was crystal clear. Of course, we are still in the early stages of our investigation, but I can say with a fair amount of certainty that this assassination was carried out by a man wearing dark-colored trousers, a brimmed hat, and a short blue parka. The Swedish public had been waiting all morning for some kind of official word. Holmir's calm demeanor was widely appreciated. His description of the killer was likely broadcast on every radio and TV station in the country. It completely overshadowed the original witnesses' recollections. In hindsight, it seems Holmir was too hasty in sorting through the testimony and too quick to side with the higher-profile witnesses. After the press conference ended, he returned to his office to find some answers. He created a small task force of upper-level police administrators and put more than 300 detectives under their command. From the beginning, Holmir made it clear that this would not be a group effort. From now on, detectives couldn't hunt down leads on their own. Every decision needed his go-ahead, or at least the approval of his inner circle. The press and public applauded Holmier's strongman approach. His confidence probably felt refreshing in a chaotic time. But the top-down strategy may have been doomed to fail, because Hans Holmier wasn't a detective. Let me take a second to clarify here. Police commissioners in 1980 Sweden were more like politicians than on-the-ground officers. Holmier's background was in law, not criminal investigation. This was actually his first murder case. He wasn't completely clueless, though. He directed his task force to comb through the tips coming in and make comprehensive lists of anyone near the murder scene the night before. At some point in the first few days of the investigation, he likely sat down with one of his top deputies. They needed to talk through the killer's possible motive. Oh, these tips are maddening. Look at this. Some hippie says we should check the position of the planets on the night of the murder. A few dozen others claim they're the murderer. And someone else suggests we should mobilize the Boy Scouts. Oh, for God's sake. Calm down, Hans. Don't overcomplicate things. Palma was walking through the city at night. They probably just looked better off than the average couple. Maybe they just... Got mugged? No. You or I could die in a mugging gone wrong. But a prime minister? I don't want to believe it, but he's flesh and blood just like us. He went out without bodyguards. Who's to say it wasn't just a tragic coincidence? I'm saying it. This wasn't just a murder. It was an assassination. Holmier didn't make any notable public statements about a possible motive, 
but it seems clear that he wrote off any suggestion it was a random street crime. For one, the killer didn't seem interested in money. He didn't try to grab Olaf's wallet or Lisbeth's purse and never threatened them with a gun before shooting. He seemed to know exactly who they were and exactly what he wanted. As far as Holmir could tell, it wasn't a spur-of-the-moment thing. The crime was politically motivated. But who was responsible? The possibilities seemed almost endless. It could be a Swedish right-wing party, an international terrorist organization, or a foreign spy network. Olaf Palma had spoken out about plenty of dangerous groups before. Maybe one of them finally took revenge. And that was after they threw out the -the off-the-wall tips. Much like after the Kennedy assassination, everyone and their mother had a conspiracy theory. The most experienced detective would probably be dizzy trying to sort it all out. And Hans Holmir had no investigation experience. The testimony and theories were clearly spiraling out of control. There was one thing he could truly rely on, hard evidence. But even that presented issues. The choice to tape off a small section of the sidewalk continued to haunt the investigation. Any footsteps the gunman might have left had been trampled by witnesses and mourners within hours of the shooting. And the patch of blood didn't provide any helpful information either. Eventually, the police did find one valuable clue at the crime scene, though. The bullet. An arms expert identified it as a Winchester 357 armor-piercing ammunition. It was probably shot from a Magnum revolver of the same size, most likely a Smith & Wesson. 357 ammunition is big and is sometimes used for hunting large animals. It seemed like an odd choice for a political assassination, but a few witnesses mentioned the gun was large and unusually loud, so it seemed to match up. At last, Hans Holmir had found a solid lead. He called another press conference to share it with the public. After answering a few preliminary questions, the commissioner solemnly held up two Smith & Wessons for the news cameras. He wanted to launch a systematic, countrywide search for the murder weapon. Anyone who had a 357 Magnum was considered a possible suspect. Scores of Swedish gun owners offered their revolvers up for testing, and Hans Holmir started organizing a massive test shooting. He wanted to check every 357 Magnum in Stockholm County and bought 100,000 rounds of ammunition in preparation. The plan seemed far-fetched but fairly logical, at least compared to the rest of the investigation. If done properly, the process could lead them right to the gunman, or at least a close associate. But this test firing never happened. Even though the bullet seemed to be the firmest piece of evidence he had, Holmir seemed to prefer something flashier. He knew a gun wouldn't only get him so far. It was the culprit that he needed. But the witnesses had given vague descriptions initially, and things had only become more complicated since then. 
many of the witnesses' stories had started to change. Though the majority of them remembered a knee-length coat on the night of the murder, several described a short blue parka now. It seemed like they'd been influenced by Holmier's first press conference and revised their memories as a result. A few days into the investigation, a new witness suddenly came out of the woodwork. A man named Stieg Engstrom claimed he heard the gunshot on his way home from work and rushed to the prime minister's side. He gave him chest compressions for several minutes. When the police arrived, he ran up the tunnel-gotten stairs to show them where the gunman went. Until this point, his story sounded very similar to the others. But there was a twist. According to Engstrom, many of the people at the crime scene actually saw him running up the stairs, not the killer. He was wearing a long blue overcoat that night. Well, maybe these witnesses were mistaken, and the gunman actually was wearing a parka. One note before we continue. Stig Angstrom was not charged or convicted of Palmy's murder, but his story did make him a person of interest. We'll get into that more next episode. For now, the important part is, his story proved nothing could be known for sure in this investigation. More than a week passed without any meaningful progress. Leads and theories seemed to come and go every few hours. Some members of Holmier's team zeroed in on a right-wing troublemaker who'd been in the area on the night of the murder. They even brought him into custody for a few days, but both Lisbeth and Morton Palma failed to pick him out of a lineup. Holmier was initially excited by this suspect, but lost interest as the flaws in the case emerged. The police chief wasn't particularly interested in any suspect, not by themselves at least. He thought a lone gunman just didn't make sense, even if they were politically motivated. The way he saw things, a solo killer couldn't have followed the Palmas from the cinema and gotten into position in time to shoot them. One person probably couldn't ambush them either. No one knew where the Palmas were going to be that night. Well, they'd only decided on the Grand Cinema a few minutes in advance. They didn't even take the most direct route back to their apartment. In order to pull something like this off, the killers had to be part of a network. They probably had been watching the Prime Minister for months. It was a conspiracy killing. Homir was sure of it. But he still had no idea who was responsible. Meanwhile, even though Holmier had reservations about their first proper suspect, the Stockholm police kept investigating him, if only to smooth over their public image. Olaf Palma's funeral was scheduled for March 15th, and it might have felt easier to mourn with a suspect in custody. For a few days, the country was able to take its attention off of the elusive gunman and focus on the leader they'd lost. Dignitaries from all over the world came to Stockholm to pay their respects. More than 100,000 Swedes crowded the streets as the funeral procession snaked through the city. 
The two-hour ceremony featured eulogies from world leaders and somber renditions of the Prime Minister's favorite songs. The white coffin was placed in front of a massive United Nations banner with the words peace and freedom written in 12 languages. It was a moving event and a reminder of the values Olaf Palma held most dear. But under the circumstances, the words on the banner might have felt painfully ironic. Because Olaf Palma's death was anything but peaceful. And in the days after the assassination, no one in Sweden felt truly free. They were held captive by the mystery, by the questions, and in some ways by the killer himself. If the police didn't clean up their act soon, things would never be the same. Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with our second episode on Olaf Palme. We'll follow along as the police announce an official conclusion and try to understand why most Swedes don't believe it. For more information on the assassination of Olaf Palma, amongst the many sources we used, we found Blood on the Snow, The Killing of Olaf Palma by Jan Bundesen, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Lisa Marie Gallegos. Stacey Nemec is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Kylie Harrington, edited by Tara Wells and Maggie Admire, fact-checked by Catherine Barner, researched by Mickey Taylor, produced by Josh Kern, and sound designed by Brian Golub. It stars Zelda Diana Black, Cameron Nicod, Julian Smith, Rebecca Thomas, and Charlie Wess. Our hosts are Wendy McKenzie and me, Carter Roy. <laughs>